This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you to the Bible Line this first day here in December. So pleased to be with you. And uh, for the next hour, if you are new, what do we do? We take questions that people have as they're studying the Word of God. Maybe they're trying to understand its meaning or its application, or they're just looking for a biblical counsel. And if we can be of help by God's grace, we will do our best. All you need to do, again, is pick up the phone and you can call us locally. It's a toll free number at 877, the call letters WAGP980, or the 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859. Or if you prefer, you can email us here directly into the studio, and that email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, at WAGP.net. We always, of course, give preference to live callers, uh, so if you want to go on the air live, we'll, you'll kind of come to the top of the, the list. Uh, sometimes people get frustrated and they say, well, I submitted a question, you know, a month ago and we haven't heard. Well, look, if I answered every question as soon as they came in, I wouldn't get anything done. So uh, it sometimes takes a month or two before a question can actually get answered. But when it is answered, uh, we will email you to let you know so that you can click on the link and uh, listen to uh, the answer to your question. So let's. with that said, let's go ahead, Rick, and we'll get started, and we'll do our best. Okay, we did best. have a caller that uh, called last week when we were off, uh, and they dictated their question. They're from Gadsden, Alabama, and uh, they write, uh, Last night, my daughter asked me, what do I think about asexual people? I'm not familiar with it, and I'm wondering if Dr. Brogy could help better understand a biblical view of what asexuality is. Well, I would be curious to know how old your daughter is, but with that said, uh, this is just common discussion now amongst high school and college students, even middle school students, because the whole LGBTQIAS2 plus agenda has uh, been taught across America. And so the A stands for asexual. So what does it mean? I suppose you could define it biblically, and then you could define it in a perverted way. Uh, Sometimes Christians use the term asexual to describe what Jesus said in Matthew 19. He's addressing the subject of marriage and divorce, and he reminds his disciples, though they're absolutely astounded at how tight he makes marriage to be, um, still nonetheless, he just reminds them that this is God's norm, that a man leaves father and mother, cleaves to his wife, and the two become one. And that very central teaching of what marriage is, what it looks like, how it functions, has, of course, been under repeated attack, especially in the last few decades. But after he concludes that discussion, he said, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are certain people, for whatever reason, uh, probably because of some physical malnuf- uh, mal- inf- malnuformity, 
uh, they are not able uh, to have a normal sexual relationship. We might call those natural eunuchs born with some kind of physical defect. And then there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. These force eunuchs, of course, uh, are castrated in one way or another. A couple procedures are done, but uh, they are forced by often kings like to guard you know, harems and so forth. And then there are eunuchs who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Uh, This is not a literal castration, but those who voluntarily, we might say, choose a lifestyle to give their full-time devotion to the work of the kingdom, and they're able to do that in a way um, where they are still morally pure people. Paul describes such a person in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me just turn over there for a moment. He uh, says in seven one concerning the things about which you wrote. So seven one is kind of a hinge verse in First Corinthians because they wrote him with a number of questions, and he begins to tick them off one uh, after another uh, to answer uh, the concerns they have. And he speaks about uh, marriage that it's good to be married, uh, but it's also good for a man not to touch a woman. And so. He further defines that when it's not good for a person to be married, uh, and he defines for those who are married what that touch should look like, that the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and the wife to her husband, that the wife doesn't have authority over her body, the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. So stop depriving one another. Uh, This is not some form of spiritual asceticism, not to be involved physically with your partner, the one you're married to. Uh, God designed it for this purpose. Um, But there are exceptions where you devote yourselves to to prayer, where you come apart, but it's only for a short and a planned period of time. But then he says, I wish that all men were even as I myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, and then he, he, he continues to go on and describes about the need for, for widows uh, to remarry unless they burn with passion and so forth. But there are some who are like Paul, who are gifted to be single their whole life. And, of course, when he approaches the end of this discussion in verse 32 of chapter 7, but I want you to be free from concern because he says, one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. And rightly so. If God calls you to be married and that's the norm, then you do have some divided interests because God calls you to minister to your wife, to your family, to those needs. But there are certainly people in the body of Christ who are so overwhelmed with the work of the kingdom of God in a healthy way that their commitment to it overrides their need to be involved in a physical relationship. So sometimes I say all this, that this is the uh, asexual definition that is used by biblicists, but I I don't like to use that term, except maybe in Matthew 19, 12, where you have people who are born with some physical abnormality. But what Paul is describing here is not that a single person who's gifted to be single doesn't have any sexual desire 
but his desire for the kingdom of God because of the way God gifted him. This is not a spiritual gift. I know they put it in some spiritual gift inventories, but this is not something that God does through you. It's as much as it is that God does to you. And again, it's very much the exception. How do I know that? Because of the mandate in Genesis uh, chapter 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It's just assumed to be true. And even when Paul gives the qualifications for an elder, there's an assumption that he's married. It's not of necessity, but there's an assumption that that is the norm. And so he addresses it on that level. Now, when the LGBTQ plus community uses this term, they obviously mean something entirely different. And the definition of being asexual is about as broad as there are people and as broad as there are homosexuals and how they would define this whole thing. If you just looked up in the dictionary what is an asexual person, they would, it would, Webster would say something to the effect someone with no desire to have a sexual relationship. Well, that's not the way the LGBTQIAS2 plus movement uses it. They use it in different ways. Like, for instance, they may say an asexual person is someone, say a man, who is um, romantically uh, involved with a woman but doesn't want to express it, romant- that, that desire in a marriage relationship, though for them marriage means very little. Um, but he may actually express it physically with another man or vice versa. So they mean all kinds of different things by asexual. Now, I will on occasion as a pastor uh, deal with this issue where someone says, well, I think I'm asexual. And some of that is just the programming that's coming from the world. You know, when a 10-year-old says, well, dad, uh, though I'm born a boy, I think maybe I'm a girl. Where is he getting that nonsense? He's getting that from the culture around him. And so as dads and moms, we need to protect our children from this damaging theology because every man has a theology, even the agnostic and the atheist, as they may call themselves, even the liberal theologian. Everyone has a theology. The word theology just means a knowledge of God, and it may be a distorted knowledge. It may be a true knowledge, but they're getting this theology from the world. And of course, it's in that context, in the context of teaching that the Apostle Paul says, bad company corrupts good morals. So today you put your child in the government school system and starting really in first grade, they're beginning to introduce the whole LGBTQ philosophy by the middle school and high school. They are in a very pointed way, even here across the great state of South Carolina, they're teaching these things. And so, again, a child comes home and says, well, maybe I'm asexual. Again, he's getting that from somewhere. Now, if a person is sincere in heart and they say, well, maybe I'm asexual, my first thought would be as a pastor, uh, maybe you need to go see a doctor just to make sure that there's not some hormone imbalance in your body, uh, that you would have no desire for the opposite sex. Um, so that would be a starting place. Sometimes people say they are asexual because they have been abused as children sometimes by a neighbor, by an uncle, by a relative, by a teacher, by a pastor, where they have been sexually abused and they have in their mind such a distaste for any kind of physical context that they classify themselves as asexual. 
So it's important that we probe a little bit when your daughter asks you a question like this, is there something behind that? But indeed, I will say parenthetically again, that as 1 Corinthians 7 teaches, that God gifts some people to be single their whole life so that they can give undistracted devotion to the work of God. But that's very much the exception. Paul, as far as we know, was the only apostle who never got married. He seemed to would have liked to have been married based on 1 Corinthians 9, uh, but God had called him to be single his whole life, and he was able to control his sexual desires uh, as a single man without in any way violating God's standards. So these are important issues, but just the fact that it's mentioned in the LGBTQIAS2 plus camp tells you right off there's some perverted definition to it. So... I hope that helps. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we have an anonymous listener who asked the following. When a person gets married, do they have to be married by a pastor? I married my husband about three years ago, and our officiant was a woman that sold us our wedding rings. Does God recognize our marriage as biblical? I didn't question this until recently, but... It is very important to know how God sees our relationship. Well, again, so your question fundamentally is what makes a marriage a marriage? And when God addresses Adam and Eve, he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This really is the establishment of the marriage relationship. Obviously, if you think about it, what does leaving your father and mother have anything to do with Adam and Eve? Because they are the first humans that God created. But God is ordaining here uh, the institution of marriage. And it's not expressly a Christian institution. It's an institution that God created for humanity. And so this is, of course, under gross attack in our day. Uh, Now, let me just say that throughout the history of the church, there have typically been some kind of public ceremony and often followed by a celebration. But what makes a marriage a marriage? It's when a man leaves his father and mother and they declare together that they are husband and wife. And so there's a public expression of that. In the last several centuries, uh, that expression has been accompanied with the recitation of vows that people make, where they recite vows to one another. But in many parts of the world, there's marriages that take place where there are no vows that are expressed. In fact, if you go into Western Europe today, there are a few countries left. I think Great Britain might now be the only one where for a marriage to be officially sanctioned, it has to be done by an official of the church. But in most um, practices across Western Europe, because only about 3% of the people on average even attend church, there is a civil document that is assigned to a couple who declare that they are married, and whether or not they go to a church to exchange vows or to honor God, that's entirely up to their, uh, you know, discretion. Um, the saying of vows and having a ceremony as such uh, is not what makes a marriage a marriage. If you read Genesis 24, and I did a whole sermon on, you know, finding a bride, 
And there are many principles that uh, Abraham had uh, with his son Isaac in trying to find a bride for him that are just timeless principles that we could learn a lot from as parents as we seek to, you know, see our children marry a, a, a godly mate. But there was no public ceremony, as you read Genesis 24, uh, but there is a public agreement that they would live as husband and wife. So today, the exchanging of vows during a wedding ceremony uh, is a vocal commitment to live publicly. But if you think uh, to live publicly in holy matrimony, but if you think about it, there's even what we call common law marriage. Uh, common law marriage was established uh, in England, I think it was in the 17th century, because there were times when it was impossible, especially in small villages and isolated places, for a clergyman to be able to uh, go to a particular village and perform a wedding ceremony. And interestingly, historically, most people have wanted you know, some kind of a religious official to oversee their wedding simply because they know that God has something to do with marriage. And of course, he does. He invented the institution. Uh, but because there was no one available, they publicly agreed in the community that they would be husband and wife, and they had what was called a common law marriage. Now, through the ages, uh, that has expressed itself in different ways. In some states, if you live together uh, like you're married for X number of years, and some say it's seven or five, actually it depends on the state, then the state considers you husband and wife after those number of, of years, and then to dissolve the relationship, it has to be done formally through a divorce. And again, God hates divorce, but, you know, again, this is something that was regulated by the state. But the point is, is that there is a leaving and a cleaving, and it's done in a public way where your friends, your family know. Um, so, again, we're called to submit to the governing authorities, Romans 13, 1 Peter, with that said, um, in the interest of the state, in the interest of children, they ask us typically to sign a law. That's not a repressive law. We should have no problems with that unless the government is asking us to do something that violates the biblical uh, concept of morality. Then we're called to submit to the governing authorities. Uh, but again, you know, I remember a couple came into my office years ago, and they went to the Beaufort County Courthouse. They were a military couple, and they went in there, and the lady, I won't mention her name, um, but she was on the phone at the time, and they'd filled out the forms, and she said, hold on just a second, a congratulations, and she put her stamp on on the document, you're married, and off they went. Of course, then they came to Community Bible Church. They got married. They they were born again. They received Christ, and then they wanted to know if they were married. And I said, "Yes, of course you're married." Oh, we kind of hate that we did it that way. Now that we understand Christian marriage, so what you did a with a female pastor, who's not really a pastor, uh, because God doesn't recognize female pastors. He only recognized male pastors, not because men are better, but because God gives us different roles. And it is interesting to see that when those roles are denied in the realm of pastors, and now we have pastorettes, that there's a short step usually from there into um, the embracing of gay marriage. Because when we blur the roles and blur the distinctions that God 
makes, then we begin to embrace what the world says as maleness or femaleness, or they might even totally deny it as through transgenderism, etc. So while you got married, maybe not in an ideal way, you're still nonetheless married. Um, by the way, with that military couple, they said, Pastor Carl, would you know, I know we're married, but we would kind of like to honor the Lord with it. And we'd like to have a small ceremony with some of our friends and just exchange our vows publicly, something that we never did. And we feel like this would be healthy. They already had, you know, a couple kids. And I said, of course, I would be happy to, to affirm you in, in that decision that you want to make. So uh, you're married. Uh, don't, don't, you know, put any doubt there. You didn't do it in the best way, but, you know, to him who knows to do right and does it not, to him it is sin. And so you probably are growing in your relationship with Christ and you've kind of rethought through this and wish you had done it differently. Well, you can't unscramble eggs, but you can certainly move forward and give people that you might minister to, certainly your own children, better counsel and a better example that than what you initiated. Very good. Uh, Well, in the closing minutes of our last live program, we had a question come in, but we didn't have time to deal with it. So uh, the listener wanted to know if you have ever heard of celebration recovery, and if so, what do you think of it? Well, um, it's kind of a Christian 12-step program. It actually uh, developed out of Rick Warren's church and you know, people say, well, can anything good come out of Saddleback? And, you know, Rick Warren, he's a Christian. Um, I don't have any reason to say he is an apostate, but he is certainly creating a model uh, for local churches that is unhealthy. He um, will have to give an account for his rejection of the biblical model of what church should look like by propagating under the church growth movement that has produced mega numbers and mega churches, uh, but without any depth, without any doctrinal uh, backing, and sadly, it's created the mess that we have in America today. So um, Celebrate Recovery, I would say, you know, certainly has been used of God, but there are aspects of it that I can't obviously embrace. Uh, They tried to take the 12-step program of AA and then put scripture behind it and Okay, so we isolate, you know, a higher power to be the living God of the Bible and the one true God who took on our humanity, um, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good. That's healthy. But when they talk about, well, we need to forgive God, that's just nonsense. You know, they, they teach in their material that you should teach people to love themselves and to forgive God, neither of which is a biblical admonition. Man already loves himself, as Paul argues in Ephesians, and God doesn't need to be forgiven for anything. That's heretical. There was another program that was done by a ministry called Rafa, and uh, it was a 12-step program um, by a guy named McGee and uh, Pat Springle, who Pat Springle was a personal friend of mine, and he helped to write this 12-step program. And it was basically done in the... um, 1980s to replace the AA program of a higher power and to uh, initiate uh, a Christian worldview on how to overcome the sin. And that's what they called it. They didn't call it an addiction. They called it a sin, the sin of drunkenness. And really until it's addressed on that level. Um, So 
Again, I'm, I'm happy for those who've gone through Celebrate Recovery. One of the weaknesses of the program is that they often put in charge people who have come out of, um, you know, a drunkard, drunkard lifestyle uh, in a place of leadership, and they end up sadly regressing and uh, falling because you don't put a new or a young believer in a p- position of authority uh, unless they can become conceited and fall into the snare and temptation of the evil one. So that's a common mistake, sadly, uh, that that ministry has replicated. But I'm grateful for anyone who is helped by it, but I think there are better programs, and the RAFA 12-step program is probably a better one. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. Michael from Ottawa, Ontario in Canada writes, we attend CBC Buford every time we are in South Carolina. We also enjoy your preaching and teaching ministry and watch often. We are starting to plan ahead for our funeral and wanted to know what the biblical position is on cremation versus traditional burial in a casket. I'm not sure if you've ever spoken on this. If there is a sermon or Bible study on the topic, we would appreciate if you'd let us know. Well, in my Genesis series where I deal with the death of Sarah, I did address this issue. But it is a common question, and I think it's an important question that we ask in the day in which we live because as of 2018, for the first time in American history, the number of Americans who are buried by cremation exceeded for the first time those who were buried in the traditional way. So does the Bible address this issue? And I would certainly say it does. The assumption in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that when you take someone and you put them in the ground, it's compared to a seed that is put in the ground with an expectation that life will come from what appears to be a dead seed. And so the Christian was giving testimony to the promise of God that the resurrection will someday take place, that when they, so to speak, planted the body in the ground using Paul's analogy, that someday this mortality will put on immortality, that this perishable will put on the imperishable, then in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, will all be changed. And so the biblical metaphor of um, the seed is best, I think, expressed through literal burial. There are some things that we do in the church, by the way, that we don't do by direct command, but we do by example. For instance, technically, there's not a command for local assemblies to have deacons, but most local assemblies have deacons, and many indeed either a single elder or plurality of elders. I think the latter is the more... Uh, biblical form of government. But with that said, we have the example of an official office in the New Testament church known as deacons. Likewise, we have by example, and so there are dozens, hundreds of things that we do through Scripture that we do, not necessarily by direct command, but by an example that God gave his people to follow. So when you go into the Old Testament, you discover that people were always buried. The exception would be when someone came under a judgment. Uh, Burning the body was done by pagans. And so um, it was an expression of their unbelief in the living God and all the power that he had that the Jews claimed that he had. 
Aiken, of course, his whole family was burned, and it was a picture of judgment. So fire and burning is a picture of judgment in Scripture, not a, not a picture of blessing. But Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, they're all buried. Uh, Joseph, his bones are put in a box, and he knows there's coming a time when the people, after what God had prophesied to Abraham, that there would be 400 years where they'd be in captivity, that they would then go into the land of promise, and he wants to make sure that his bones are brought to the promised land and that he is buried. Uh, There is an exception of Saul and his sons. If you remember, uh, their bodies were hung on a wall, and we go to that very place. It's described in 1 Samuel 31. Um, we go to that very place where it took place when we go to Israel. And by the way, there's still room for a few more in May of 2022. So if you have an interest in going to Israel, go to searchthescriptures.org, and you can find out the details. But his bodies were, his body and the bodies of his son were so badly mutilated as they were hung on a wall uh, the flesh was probably rotting to be able to transport them back to the place, Jerusalem, where they would be buried. Um, they burned the flesh off of the bones, but then carefully took the bones and carried them and buried, had an official burial. When you, when you think about um, cremation, interestingly, um, most would credit the Unitarians with it. Some credit this Presbyterian physician But I really think, as I've studied the issue, that those who are credited with the whole idea of cremation are the Unitarians, uni meaning one. So one of the things that Unitarians espoused was that there is one God, but they denied his Trinitarian nature. They also denied the authority of the Bible. They also deny the authority of of what Scripture says concerning a literal resurrection. And so to defy the Christians of their day who are biblicists and to raise their puny little fists in the face of God Almighty, they said, well, we're going to burn this body into oblivion. Let's see what your God can do with it. And so it was pretty much a non-issue until about the 1950s. It began to change in America it began to change even more in the 1980s because Americans stopped going to churches that were teaching the Bible. And now in a day of gross biblical ignorance, 40 years since 1980, uh, people don't know which end is up. And so the genesis of this question. Uh, so again, God has a plan for the body. He's given us a model. So even in the New Testament, John the Baptist, he was buried. Uh, Jesus was buried, of course, just for a short time in a borrowed tomb, but nonetheless, they would have dealt with his body in a God-honoring way. They didn't cremate him, they buried him. Ananias and Sapphira, even as disobedient Christians, they were buried. And of course, when Moses dies, the one officiating his funeral is God himself. And so he's brought to the top of Mount Nebo, and the Lord says, I'm reading from Deuteronomy 34, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, that is Yahweh, the Lord God, buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Beor. So God buried him. 
So I think by example, God didn't burn him. He buried him. And by the way, those who advocate uh, cremation, they're never consistent. You know, they lose a little child, you know, a two-year-old or a three-year-old. They don't say to the funeral director, we want to cremate this little baby. Almost always, you talk to any funeral director, 99.9% of the time, They'll say, we want to bury this little precious child. Well, somehow, you know, people get old and maybe they're not as precious and and they decide to cremate that adult who is now gone. Look, from a practical point of view, too, let me just say this. As a pastor, and, and I'll do anyone's funeral. You know, people have accused me, well, you won't do my funeral if I'm cremated. That's a lie. That's not true. Things are said all the time about pastors that are just ill-informed and not accurate. I'll do anyone's funeral uh, if they ask me to do it. Um, With that said, your funeral will have a whole lot more punch if there's a casket down in front. When there's an urn or no urn at all, just a picture, you've lost really the punch and the reality of death. Um, right in front of people's eyes. And I think that's important. You know, when you see a young man who's being carried to the graveyard who was just recently dead, there's a lot of heartache and sorrow. And when there's a body there, there's typically tears there and there's sorrow. And when there's nobody there, the, the heartbreak that God's Spirit can bring by doing it His way is oftentimes lost. And, you know, when people tell me, hey, I want you to preach the gospel at my funeral. I've got, you know, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a relative, some friends who don't know the Lord Jesus. And, and I'm hoping maybe at my funeral, if you preach the gospel because they won't come to church otherwise, that maybe they'll be saved. I'll say, well, great. Make sure your body's there because it's your last will and testament, and there's many lessons that can be taught by a pastor about the coming resurrection and and what uh, allows a person to come to the resurrection of life rather than to the resurrection of judgment when there's a real body there. So people say, well, it's more expensive. Yes, yeah, so what? You know, you buy a $50,000 car. Well, why? Well, it's important to me. Well, you know, you don't have to buy a gold-plated casket. You can buy a cheap one. In fact, you can buy a pine box that has felt nailed to the outside. In fact, you can make your own casket if you want. Or, in fact, you can order it through Costco, and you can make it very inexpensive, comparatively speaking, uh, to some funerals. So when they say, well, the average cost is $15,000, it doesn't have to be. Um, so with that said, do it God's way. Honor the Lord. Um, I'm not telling you that if you've been cremated that you're a wicked person or anything like that. But if you're asking me, is this couple is from Ontario, Canada, bury the body, don't cremate. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks so much for taking my call. I have a question about Bartholomew, one of the 12 apostles yes. mentioned in Matthew 10, Luke 6, and Acts 1. Right. Um, I've been watching a show recently that suggests that Nathaniel was one of the 12 in John 1. Um, they imply that he was Bartholomew since the other 11 are already represented. So I just wanted to know what Scripture says about these two men, if I'm missing something. No, Thanks. I don't think you are at all. So, um, 
Um, you know, you let Scripture compare Scripture by process of elimination. Some of the disciples had more than one name, and that's not uncommon in biblical times. Saul of Tarsus was, of course, the Apostle Paul. Cephas is also called Peter in the two disciples, in the different lists of the disciples, so that the same name is not always there. So you're describing the same person with two different names. So that was a that was an accurate assessment they came up with. So just put all the lists together and it, and you separate them out. I have a whole chart on it. Um, it's not published as such, but it's it's pretty straightforward. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, very good. John from Manchester, New Hampshire, says, I was reading in Deuteronomy 9, verses 9 to 18, and Moses did not eat or drink for 40 days. Jesus went up to the mountain to fast and pray for 40 days. Is there a message, a connection? I only thought that the 40 days as well as the 40 years the Israelites were wandering before going into the promised land seemed to be some kind of purge or cleansing. Can you help me make any connection between the two? Well, I think there's maybe even a bigger connection that you might um, want to consider. Uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, if you fast forward a few chapters to the 18th chapter, and by the way, Deuteronomy 16, 16, 17, 17, 18, 18 are some key sections in, in the book of Deuteronomy. But in 1818, uh, Moses writes, I will, he says, the Lord said to me, they have spoken well, I will raise up a prophet. So this is God speaking through Moses's pen. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So there's coming a prophet who is no ordinary prophet. He is, a, he is the definitive prophet. And by the way, God progressively unfolds for us what the Messiah would look like and that he would fill three offices, the office of prophet, the office of priest, not in the Levitical priesthood, but according to the priesthood of Melchizedek, and the office of king. So Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. And so the Jewish people understood what Moses was saying, that there's coming a prophet of prophets, and they understood this to be the Messiah. And of course, if you remember in John chapter 6, let me just turn there for a moment because I don't want to misquote it. Uh, John 6 is a very important chapter of Scripture where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And in John 6 and verse 14, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So not just a prophet, but the prophet, the prophet of prophets. If you um, remember earlier, even in John's gospel, when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's baptizing um, people, now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him and said to him, to John the Baptist, why are you baptizing if you are not the Messiah, the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So again, they, they recognized there was coming this prophet. And when you hear Stephen preach his survey of the Old Testament, he identifies the Lord Jesus as that prophet. And if you read Peter's sermon in Acts 3 on the day of Pentecost, let me just turn there. So again, this is how they understood it. So I'm letting Scripture 
interpret Scripture. I'm not coming up with some assessment that the Scripture itself doesn't affirm. Uh, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which performed, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This one, this man, delivered over to you by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says, I saw the Lord always, and so on and so forth. And and then he goes on and he reminds us that this is the prophet of God that God had spoken of, um, not by accident. It's by design. And so as he stands up a little bit further in Acts 3, he says, Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among my brethren. So he's giving an assessment here in his second sermon. Uh, to him, you shall give heed to everything that he says to you. So what I'm trying to say is John the Baptist understood there was one who is called the prophet. He didn't claim to be that prophet. He said, the one who's coming after me, I'm not even unworthy. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. The Jewish people understood there was one coming known as the prophet. Stephen affirmed it, and Peter does in Acts chapter 3 there as he carries further what he has already taught in his first sermon. So with that said, I, I think you've missed the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that there are parallels between Moses, one like me, he says. There's one coming after me who is like me. So in some sense, there's going to be some parallels between Moses and the Messiah himself. And so if you think about it, there was a mass killing of every Hebrew baby under the age of two um, when Pharaoh ordered that mass killing. So there was with Herod in the Lord Jesus. It, Moses comes to redeem his people to, to take them out of slavery. So the Lord Jesus uh, takes, takes the Jewish people out of, of slavery. He's born to redeem the people of Israel. So it's not by accident that there are parallels. He um, comes... Uh, the Lord Jesus, after 400 years of darkness where there's no prophet in Israel. Even so, Moses comes after 400 years of captivity where the people are in, quote-unquote, darkness. So parallel after parallel, Moses pleads with God to provide for the people, and he does. He provides for them powerfully with manna, and, and so Jesus makes an analogy in the feeding of the 5,000, the chapter I just referenced in John 6, where God once again provides. Moses uh, lifts up a snake on a stick um, as a picture of Messiah. Jesus is that one who's literally held up on a cross. Moses initiates the very first Passover. Jesus initiates the final Passover. He's the fulfillment of it. So there are all these parallels. And so to answer your question, Moses, for 40 days, fast. And so Jesus does the same thing. And so there is a parallel between what Moses did really supernaturally, because he could not have done that on his own, because Deuteronomy said he had no food or drink. Uh, That was a miracle. That was the miraculous touch of God on his life, just as we'd seen it expressed in a number of other settings. So it was with the Lord Jesus. So that's the bigger picture in that Jesus is the prophet who is like Moses, but 
distinctively different from Moses and that he is God the Son. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question. And we just had somebody dictate their question. They'd like to know what a couple should do when they are both professing Christians, but the husband is verbally abusive and not wanting to be a loving partner in the marriage. Well, you should um, get some help. You should go see a pastor. Hopefully you're A, in a sound church where the Word of God is being taught, and you're sitting under a pastor who believes the Word of God, who's expositing God's Word, and you should go see him or another like pastor. Uh, that's, in, that's important. Uh, you need biblical counsel. You know, the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things, not some things, all things. All that God has planned for your life, um, however you can take that verse and apply it in a broader sense from its original context, um, you can do it if Christ is strengthening you. And so the question becomes, how does Christ strengthen you? Well, you need to learn to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit because as you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so you're saying that your husband lacks self-control. He just rips at you verbally in an abusive way. Now, you have some responsibility as a wife. First Peter uh, chapter uh, 3 tells you that you have an example to follow, the example of the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus, of course, was a perfect person. Uh, he never did anything wrong. He committed no sin, Peter will write in 2.22, nor was any deceit ever found in his mouth. So everything that he said and did was holy, and yet, while being reviled, he didn't even revile or insult back in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And so the Scripture teaches that we have been given an example, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And so he has just dealt with servants who were mistreated by their masters. And he says, listen, you need to be willing to suffer unjustly, for that's the example. Well, then he begins 1 Peter 3, 1, in the same way you wives be submissive to your husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, I'm not advocating if your husband is beating you physically, that you should allow him to do that, or if he were harming the children or something like that. Uh, there's a reason based on 1 Corinthians 7 for a planned separation, sometimes for the protection of your body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But if your husband is disobedient to the word, uh, you're going to win them first by your respectful and honoring behavior. It would be very easy for you to return insult for insult and evil for evil instead of giving a blessing. And it is interesting how the Scripture teaches that a gentle answer turns away wrath. So it's very easy in a natural realm when he is harsh towards you to respond back, and then it kind of grows, and that's not God's desire. But with that said, sometimes you have to draw a line in the sand, and you just say to your husband, listen, husband, I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm not going anywhere, but we need to get help. We need to go see the pastor. And it may be embarrassing to him 
um, where he thinks, well, I, I don't want the pastor to know I've got these issues. Well, he needs to think about bigger issues. The bigger issues is that your children are growing up in a home where they're seeing not a love relationship that's being modeled, but they're seeing um, two people uh, battling it out. And that's not a good model for them. And typically, that sets the stage for rebellion in the hearts of the children. And so there are bigger issues involved, and he needs to realize that, that, you know, God is not mocked that whatever a man sows, he will reap. And the thing about the law of sowing and reaping is that when you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't come up immediately. It always takes some time for the seed to germinate and for ultimately that plant to sprout and then to develop. So if you sow discord in your marriage, those seeds are going to come out in the lives of the children and they may end up, instead of, you know, wanting to embrace your Christian faith, uh, rebelling against it because all they see is disharmony in the home. And two, typically when there's disharmony in a home like that, they don't want to be there. Uh, they'll go find a sense of security and a sense of peace amongst their peers, and sometimes their peers will be a worse influence to them. Uh, so this is an important issue that you are addressing in um, you know, for decades, I've helped hundreds and hundreds of couples. So I begin to, one, help them to say, hey, look, this is a problem. And until we identify it as sin, we can't really receive God's forgiveness and see God begin to change it. But then how does he change it? And what is the role of walking in the spirit and scripture memory and our positional truths in Christ? And we begin to discuss those things and work through those things, and uh, and God brings real change and real healing. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Noel from Beaufort writes, is the Salem mentioned in Genesis fourteen eighteen an early name for Jerusalem? Yes, it is. So um, uh, if you go to Genesis 14, let me just turn there. Um, and again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so this man, Melchizedek, is mentioned later on in the book of, in the book of uh, Hebrews. But in Genesis um, 14, he mentions this encounter that this man, Abraham, upon whom God will build a whole nation, uh, where, where he has this encounter, Melchizedek, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So where does this take place? It takes place in what we call um, the area of the Kidron Valley and the Temple Mount. And this is a very important area, and it's not accidental that he has this encounter with Melchizedek in this area that today is fully named Jerusalem. It, it didn't always, of course, carry the name of Jerusalem. Uh, David uh, overthrew it through the Jebusites, and it was later named Jerusalem um, and the city of David. So it has it carries a couple of different titles. It's also called Zion as such, and 
Uh, but when the writer of the Hebrews uh, intersects with Genesis um, chapter 14, he makes reference to this encounter that Abraham has with Melchizedek. Uh, some think that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I don't think so. Uh, but I do think he is certainly a type. He's an illustration of Christ. Uh, and so the scripture says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom Abraham gave a tenth of all that he owned. And then he's described further. It says that his name, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness and also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So Malek and Shalom and Yuri means place of or city of. And so city of peace, Jerusalem. And so he has no father or mother in terms of there's no recorded genealogy of him. Uh, so in that way, he is a picture. He's made like the son of God and he remains a priest perpetually. And so, of course, in the writer of the Hebrews, he's arguing for a greater priesthood over the Levitical priesthood and that these Jewish Christians were living in folly to go back to the Levitical system when Christ, who represented a different priesthood, uh, fulfilled all that was seen and pictured in the Levitical priesthood. But I say all that, that none of this is by accident. Jerusalem is the um, apple of God's eye. It's the centerpiece of human history. He brought the Messiah um, to die on a cross in Jerusalem, but the place was not by accident. It was the place where Abraham met Melchizedek. It was the place where David was called of God to offer a sacrifice to stay off an awful plague. That same place, Solomon was instructed to build the temple, and it's there on the mountains of Moriah that the Lord Jesus is crucified on a cross, really at the peak of Moriah. It says technically mountains of Moriah. So it's just kind of like elevated place. Now, I know when we think of a mountain, we might think of, you know, Mount Washington or Mount Everest, but biblically speaking, the term mountain is used a little bit differently. When you think about the Mount of Olives, it's a very high hill, but in most people's minds, at least in the West, we wouldn't call that a mountain, but they would in that part of the world, and they certainly do in the Bible. And so um, Jerusalem is the city of peace, and by God's grace, we're going in there May of 2022. So if you have interest in coming and uh, seeing in living color the places that you read about in Holy Scripture, go to searchthescriptures.org, and all the details are there of how you can participate in the coming trip. We're so glad that you could be with us today for the Bible Line, and God willing, next Tuesday we will be back here in this same place. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ. Thank you.